Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm Heather. Hi, everyone. I'm Kamara, and we are your co-hosts. Thank you to those of you who are returning to the table with us, and welcome to all of our new listeners who are joining us for the first time. We have an incredible guest coming to the Yams and Yuka table. As always, before they join us at the table, we will go into our appetizer for a bite-sized conversation on today's topic. Let's see what's on the menu. Hi, Kamara. How are you today? I am doing well, thank you, all things considered. How about you? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm under a bit of pressure. You told me to start off today's conversation, and that is our topic, thriving under pressure. What does that do to you? You know, that famous quote, pressure makes diamonds. You know, it's Mm -hmm. needed to create something new. And, you know, when you're training, especially with dance, you know, that's our background. Even beyond dance, I think the way I was raised, I had a lot of pressure on me from my parents just my family's background. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if I've shared this with you, but essentially, you know, I have pretty huge shoes to fill as far as what my my grandmother, my dad, my great-grandmother, sort of that side of my lineage, where it comes from. My great-grandfather was one of the first to start the bus boycotts in Atlanta during the civil rights movement. He walked alongside uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. King, Coretta, Scott, all those, Andrew Young, all those big um, leaders during the civil rights movement, they sat in my grandmother's home. So my grandmother was around these people all the time. My church is right there on Auburn Avenue um, next door to Ebenezer Baptist Church, the famous church of Dr. Martin Luther King. And equally, my grandmother was one of the leading black OBGYN doctors in Atlanta my grandfather who passed away a while ago, he was a dentist as well. Like, so, you know, that traditional, like, you know, they were also my great grandfather, my grandmother, um, my dad, they're all preachers. Um, my dad was fifth generation. So there was like five generations of preachers in my family. So if you can imagine all of that pressure, being a preacher's kid, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Your family having all of this sort of like everyone knew my family in Atlanta when I was growing up. If they didn't know me directly, they knew who whose child I was. So there's just a lot of pressure on me growing up to be that great kid, to to do great things, to be good, be on my P's and Q's. So, you know, it definitely shaped who I was. Mm-hmm. What about you? Did you experience any pressure like that in your life or growing up or now? No, not growing up, not pressure from outside. I mean, I did have, you know, my parents had good jobs and had high standards and things like that but I think for me the pressure probably more came from myself I I never had that pressure from my parents to do particular jobs or study particular things no they were just supportive of whatever it is that I chose Mm. and I think definitely the pressure was put on myself from all from me and I think Mm. I still I still am like that so when I want to achieve something it's not because anybody has said anything. They're my own personal goals. I guess I'm quite hard on myself, which is something mm. I'm learning to deal with. I'm constantly learning to manage that. So, yeah, so for me, the pressure mainly comes from myself. Yeah. And thriving, th- 
through that. Yeah, and it's a challenge for me personally because I think we've had this discussion before, but, you know, who decides? Nobody knows if you're going to do something. Right. (laughs) Except for you. Yeah. You can sometimes spend time beating yourself up because you haven't done something or haven't achieved something that you wanted to achieve, but nobody knows that except for you. Mm. So, yeah, but thriving under pressure, I've always felt myself wanting to achieve and that's not saying that you know my family didn't want me to achieve I'm not saying that yeah I just didn't feel that extra pressure from outside sources yeah it's just more I guess just the industry in general just being a dancer Mm -hmm. and wanting to be uh, good whatever that means in the dance setting because you're always being critiqued you're always having to be, I hate to say the word again, good, but correct. You're always, whatever that mm-hmm. means, you know, whether it's choreography or with technique or with a style or getting the choreography correct or correct steps, you always have to be, you yeah. can't make mistakes. And when you go to auditions, you have that pressure to, to get it right, to perform, to show so that you can get the job. Yeah. There's always the pressure there. So I guess in that sense, pressure for me has come from the industry itself yeah and do you feel overwhelmed at times by it though yeah absolutely and I think the current situation with uh, COVID-19 and being in lockdown and having to change how we operate or change what we were previously comfortable with with how we operate has definitely highlighted that yeah it's been such a challenge to continue to thrive And I guess what has been reinforced in me is that, yes, we must thrive always, but it's okay to not thrive as well. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's an important thing to remember, that we don't always have to be, you know, winning awards and choreographing these amazing pieces and having happy students all the time and great situations and making, making money and you know, because that's just not the reality. So I think whilst I do want to thrive under pressure, sometimes it can encourage well, me personally to work too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to work more than I should and not take enough rest. Yeah. Which is what I have experienced, especially in the current period, just that pressure to keep producing something because you know what if people forget about us or right or sometimes people expect us to I know that there are things that people are expecting myself and um some of my colleagues you know the sector is literally expecting us to do things I've actually had someone call me because I didn't attend a particular zoom meeting and I was just like wow people are really expecting me to show up but it's like I'm just trying to show up for myself (laughs) No, exactly that. And I've had to tell people, well, you have to tell people, no, you have to. Yeah. My line of the moment is I don't have the capacity to do that. Oh, yes. (laughs) I love that. I love that one. I've been using that as well. (laughs) I'm going to give that to you all. I don't have the capacity to do that. Yes. I love that. I don't have the capacity to deal with this at this time. I don't want to go to another Zoom. I don't want to. And just, yeah, being okay with saying no, it's really important to look after yourself, like you said, to not Mm -hmm. go to that Zoom meeting if it happens. We know ourselves best. 
And I think something that is not taught, especially during training, is that that need to rest and to look after your own self. And, you know, there's been so much more talk about mental health over recent years, which has been incorporated into some training, which is positive to see. Yeah, but I think we need to, yes, thrive under pressure, but also learn that it's okay not to thrive and to take breaks. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I'm I have a bit of um an addict if you will. There's something about when there's so much pressure and you come out on top and you mm-hmm. really like something really glorious comes out of it. That feeling mm-hmm. is almost addictive to me. And I yeah. don't know if that I don't know if that like makes me put more pressure on myself mm-hmm. or makes me give in to pressure from other people or the circumstance or the situation, but there is like when you conquer something and it's just been so difficult or you know that a lot of people are depending on you that also feels really really great oh absolutely absolutely and as long as you've got the ability the kind of physical mental and emotional ability to to push through with that then yeah you know there's nothing better than a challenge I call it (laughs) I love a challenge I love is that a challenge (laughs) (laughs) sorry I'm I'm quoting Lion King Avery's been running around (laughs) saying lines from Lion King <laughs> and there's like a moment it's at the very beginning when Scar and um and Mufasa like are talking after he didn't show up for Simba's sort of reveal <laughs> and Avery's just been running around saying that is that a challenge <laughs> she just says sorry <laughs> yes it is and so many times we we do love that challenge we like say challenge accepted because yeah exactly. I know me I, I am a very last minute person I love to do things with a shorter a space of time yeah so yeah so pressure in that sense yeah I can definitely thrive in that situation absolutely I, I do tend to prefer it <laughs> actually yeah. I just tend to use my time better when I have less of it that procrastination is a is a thing as well. I do feel like it is some part of my process of delivering mm-hmm. and thriving. Yes. I get in danger, though, when I wait a little too late. I think by now, because I've mastered, I've put in my 10,000 hours of procrastination and delivering. You know, right. I started very, very young practicing that <laughs> at a lot of times <laughs> where I failed <laughs> and didn't quite pull through on that project. You know, my mom would get pissed at me like this is when I was in sixth grade sixth seventh grade I'll have a science project and I would literally wait till the night before be like yeah I have to turn this in mind you other kids have been spending weeks on it and I show up with some like crappy project (laughs) I've had plenty of those experiences so um yeah I kind of know my threshold of like okay girl you're trying it right now get on it (laughs) yeah you can't try and you can't try and pretend that your work is is good when you have definitely not putting it haven't put in the time yeah time and effort required no you need to know yourself so yeah Yeah. but I think over time you you definitely know what you can deliver in a short space of time and what you absolutely can't yeah so yeah but I guess it's just uh it's definitely something that is a factor of the industry especially dance Mm -hmm. that thriving under pressure even if you take it on a kind of performance setting we are we are always problem solving constantly mm-hmm. you know so yeah and in the moment 
Exactly. You know, if you're teaching or if you're on a at an event or something, you know, you can't predict anything. So exactly, exactly. Or if you're if you're performing and you know someone falls over or misses their step. Yeah. Exactly. You you decide in that moment and you always make it work. So I think it's a skill that can be beneficial that we we learn during dance. So that's that's another thing that is you know, people don't always talk about all the extra skills that you develop as as a dancer, and I'm sure it's across mm-hmm. other art forms as well. But yeah, that thriving under pressure, that problem solving, and delivering something that is of of quality, that's of a standard, is something that is really innate in us. So, it's a skill that we have. It's a skill that we're good at. But mm-hmm. on the flip side, so long as we do it whilst maintaining our we're practicing self-care at the same time then I think it's definitely something that will always be part of us yeah for sure well I'm pretty sure our guest for today knows a little something about pressure and delivering and thriving and she's a very 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 talented dancer so we're gonna leave this little bit of our meal and get ready to welcome our guests to the table take a quick break and we'll be right back Welcome back. It's time to introduce our dinner guest for today. We are joined by Precious Adams, and before she comes to the virtual table, I'll share a little bit about her. Precious is one of the few world-class black ballerinas in the world. She is a part of some of the leading black ballerinas leading the way towards diversifying the classical arts. She is currently a professional artist with the English National Ballet under the directorship of the internationally renowned Tamara Roth. Precious has trained with some of the best teachers and some of the greatest ballet schools in the world, including three years at the Bolshoi Academy in Moscow, Russia. She also previously trained at the Princess Grace Academy in Monte Carlo, Monaco, and the National Ballet School in Toronto, Canada. The very sweet and talented Precious Adams has won several awards, including two prizes at the Prix de Lausanne, which is arguably the most prestigious ballet competition in the world. In 2014, she was named the best contemporary dancer. And also in 2014, she was a medalist and prize winner at the National Young Arts Foundation in the field of dance. Her other awards and achievements include the Best Emerging Artist Award in 2018 from the National Dance Awards Critics Circle and more. Precious has also done some major campaigns for brands like Superdry and the Swiss watch brand Zenith in 2020, which is coming out at the end of the year. Precious performs all over the world with the English National Ballet and has done some notable lead roles like the coveted Chosen One in Pina Bausch's The Rite of Spring in 2019. Although Precious is normally a very busy ballerina traveling the world with English National Ballet, She has always had a passion for authentic self-expression and development. She has played a big role in helping the classical art form create work that is relevant and inclusive for the future. Precious lives to inspire and to be inspired, to empower others and to be empowered. She lives to dance. Welcome, Precious. Wow. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> yes, come on, bio. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they might need to edit some of that out. <laughs> no, no need to edit. No, no, no. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here. 
We are happy to have you, privileged to have you join us, and we're really excited to just hear more about you and um, what you've done and your experiences. So we're going to jump right in, and let's start with telling us a significant memory growing up that shaped who you are today, and it could be anything personal or professional. You know what? I couldn't pin it down to like one event because it's like, I think I really view my life and like even like little tiny experiences that happen on like a daily basis and stuff and how I deal with it as like, it all is like a defining part of my journey. Mm-hmm. It's like impossible to pin down, you know, like the mm-hmm. moments that I've had as to like what's what's been like the most significant in like shaping me. I mean, I would definitely say like my mother and my sister just as like such empowered black women, like their presence in and of itself like hugely defines and shapes who I am Mm -hmm. and like loving myself and like being a black woman and stuff like has, it's just all really, I would say like my relationship with my mother and my sister has hugely defined who I am. Like, yeah, I couldn't pin it down to like a moment. It's just like, yeah, my relationship with them is so significant that it's like made me who I am, I guess. Yeah. You know, those role models and, our mothers are our initial and first examples for some of us. That's our first example of the women that we might want to be, you know, a leader in our family or a strong woman there guiding us. So I can imagine that, you know, your mom and your sister would really have that influence on you. Do you have any favorite memories with your mom or your sister that you can think of? You know what? I would say it was like my sister's graduating year. My sister's also a professional ballet dancer. Oh, nice. Currently uh, Ballet de Monte Carlo in Monaco and Monte Carlo. And it was her graduating year. So she would have been, I think she was 17. She graduated a little early. And she was studying in Amsterdam at the time. So my mom and I went to her graduation performance. And I remember one of the nights we like we just went out for like dinner and then like we could all like sit and like have a drink together and it was like we were all women and like kind of grown up you know or like it it just felt that way Mm -hmm. I remember we had like this really long in-depth conversation I mean effectively it was about life and I can barely remember like the fine details of like what we were speaking about but it was like one of those really deep heart-to-hearts and I think the conversation got into like stuff about like race and identity and but also there's like a lot of positive things in the conversation, but like hearing my sister, like kind of speak like just so articulately about like such important life issues and to like, to sit like the three of us and to just like talk it out. I don't know. It was kind of like, that was kind of the first kind of like moment when it was like, wow, like we're all like grown up now. Like we're not like Mm. anymore. And so I guess I would have been 19 I don't know. It's just, I thought it was a real like bonding moment. And it's, it's something that's like so simple, but I think also because I was in boarding school for so long, I mean, something like sitting with your mom and talking probably happens for most people on a weekly basis or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I guess that was kind of like a little bit more significant. Cause it was like, it was kind of like being on a trip together, like the three of us and kind of being women kind of like for the first time, like kind of everyone stepping into their own in terms of like my sister and myself and my mom being there. So yeah, like that was a really beautiful trip. 
Wow, that's really beautiful. That's incredible um, that both you and your sister are ballet dancers. That's lovely to share that talent with your family. I know for me, I'm the only, not the only artist, but I'm the only dancer in my family. But mm-hmm. what was that relationship like? You and your sister both dancing. I'm assuming you guys attended school at some point together. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, briefly, like when we were like, like under 10 years old was kind of the only time that we were really kind of dancing kind of together but it's like it's still like we were always in different classes so we were never really together together and like definitely not for like prolonged periods of time so like maybe we would take a class together or something but I would say like it was always just like really fun but then I think we both kind of knew we wanted to have careers as ballet dancers Mm -hmm. by the time we were like teenagers and stuff and you know when you're a teenager like hormones and your little like diva side comes out starts coming through and there was like a brief period when like I was probably 15 and she was 13 and kind of like that kind of mid-teen area when we got like really competitive and it kind of got really bad at one point and I remember like um I came home from boarding school and we would have like these like stretching parties or whatever like where we would like stretch and do exercises and stuff at home and she like didn't want to like help me stretch and I remember we had like this huge fight and it was it was around like jealousy and feeling um you know just feeling jealous and kind of that competitive nature where you're like you're my enemy like you're my nemesis like why would I help you oh no but it kind of went both ways but then it's like you mature and you grow out of it and it's like no like we're family like that's just not how it works like your success and yeah. my success and vice versa yeah and you just kind of have to find that security within yourself because yeah it's really nasty to kind of have like kind of green envious jealous competitive feelings even in like the workplace or in the real world like it mm. hinders you as an artist so yeah like I think it was an important stage to go through because at least I went through it young and early because I mean you'll see people join the company now at like 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. like don't know how to deal with those feelings so yeah apart from like that rough period in our mid mid teens that probably only lasted like a really short period of time we've always been really close and really good friends I would still say she's like my closest family member and yeah like we're just like super supportive of one another now and like we just have a really great friendship sister relationship yeah that's great to hear I don't have experience in the sister relationship but I know that's a very very complicated relationship Kamara I don't know if you want to jump in at all (laughs) (laughs) well for me and my sister I'm quite a bit older than her so I think that's where the difference is I'm eight years older than my sister and you mentioned I think preciously two years is there two years difference yeah we're just two years apart Mm, yeah so for me it's eight years so we were never really we were never in the same even age group really to even have those kind of comparisons so it's a different so it's always been a bit of a different type of relationship now that we're older where the age is insignificant the gap you know it's almost like we're the same age but yeah so so no I I don't have the same experience but yeah I fully understand it, especially when you're a teenager with those hormones and everything yeah and there was something actually um that you mentioned that I think I know I experienced and it's common as far as like that competitiveness 
And you definitely experience it in training when you're going for different roles Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's auditions coming up. And yeah, we can talk about that more later, I guess, when we get into the training and, and those kind of questions. But, you know, you've worked and you've trained so many different places. Um, what was that transition like, obviously moving from the States and going to Moscow and going to all, you know, all the different schools, training in Canada? Can you talk about that and some of your significant memories with that training in, in so many different places? Gosh, I don't want to speak forever because that's like a whole like 10 year period <laughs> or whatever. I loved it. Like, I think I'm just really lucky that I found something that I was really passionate about so early. So it was really easy for me to just kind of be like okay like how do I get better like how do I make sure I'm kind of always moving forward and pushing pushing ahead and kind of at the top of whatever the parameter was for like being like towards a professional level in terms of like training and and like was I getting that out of like the the school that I was at I also kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to train in Russia at some point but I knew that like my mom we had kind of decided like, no, like you can't go to Russia at 11. Well, like one of my colleagues, actually, she went to the same ballet school as uh, I did in Moscow. She had the same teacher, but we're different generations. We're about eight years apart. And she went to the, she went to the school when she was uh, 11, mm-hmm. but she's South Korean. So like, that is very common. Like if you have the facility for ballet and you're kind of seen by like the right teacher who wants to push that dancer towards cultivating like their fullest potential to becoming like a world-class artist or whatever, because they have the correct, whatever facility, then they will kind of get pushed into like, to try to get pushed into the best ballet school when they're young. Mm -hmm. Mm. It takes a solid eight years of like, of training to be a professional level ballet dancer. But all that being said, like things have also kind of started to change. So like, that's kind of, I guess like where I come in or where like Misty Copeland comes in or like where, things have kind of shifted perhaps away from like this textbook perfect body with perfect proportions towards someone who is self-driven enough to just be like fucking amazing at what they do and kind of valuing that over someone who's just genetically quote-unquote gifted or whatever because that I guess as a society I guess we're also I don't know if that's kind of like the new age thinking is we're kind of like moving away from like kind of idolizing like oh like perfect proportions perfect genes and kind of like revaluing like hard work and like character more so yeah I just pretty much loved boarding school uh it was just it was really fun yeah and I just really loved it Mm. so the first school I went to in Canada in Toronto was about a six-hour drive away from my house which was why we kind of chose that school because it was kind of the best um full-time pre-professional school that had like room and board plus like you were chaperoned all the time so my mom was really comfortable with sending me there because she knew it was like okay the academics are really good you're chaperoned all the time I can send my 11 year old there and know that like she'll be well taken care of and so I stayed there for two years but because it's so complicated see this is what I'm talking about I could talk about this forever go ahead they put me in the higher level ballet class when I first went so they put me in the grade seven ballet class but I was in sixth grade academically and so then when I went to seventh grade because the schedules flipped around when you go into eighth grade which is like it was like entering like the next like level of schooling or whatever like middle school or whatever it wouldn't work for me to do the grade eight ballet class so they were like oh you have to just repeat the seventh grade ballet class and I was kind of annoyed about that because I was like 
ballet school is like it's like paying for private school plus room and board for like this 12 year old kid it's really really expensive and I was like how come no one thought about this like either I need to skip a grade academically or like why would my parents pay so much for me to repeat the same uh, syllabus of ballet you know what I mean and it's like it's among the top in the world in terms of like the curriculum the education and everything but it's like I was like wait like why would I do it all over again like this is insane like that's ridiculous so I was pretty annoyed about that and I told my mom like I was like I don't think I should stay here like did no one think this through like I think it's stupid for us to pay all this money for me to do the same thing again which is like a real shame because it's such a great school so then I left and I went to the school in Monaco for two years and then I went to Moscow just because that opportunity presented itself and I knew I wanted to train in Moscow at some point but yeah, yeah. This was like before smartphones even um so like going to Monaco like I didn't have a phone and it's kind of like crazy to think about it now like I would never travel without my phone and I'm like how did I even get from point a to point b like the same when I first went to Moscow I didn't have I had a phone but I didn't have a smartphone and yeah, I think my mom was like, just call me if like there's a real emergency because, you know, it would have been really, really expensive because this is when it was like you had to have a SIM card or get a calling card. Mm. Yeah, it was like a different time, man. It's crazy to think about. Like I would never go on a trip to a foreign country without like my phone and Wi-Fi and 3G, you know what I mean? Or 4G at least or whatever. But yeah, you just kind of like make it happen. Like back in the day, man, you used to just ask people on the street for directions you know yeah <laughs> yeah I definitely <laughs> remember my trips in younger days uh like 2008 I think I spent a summer in Italy and it was the same thing I had a phone but like that was before international calling was like or like the international plan was really a thing so you did you had to go to the local shop grab a calling card mm-hmm. find a local landline to like make the call <laughs> it was a whole ordeal yeah. you had to get lost to figure out where you were going <laughs> So that's a lot of different countries and a lot of different places in such a short span of time. Were there any shifts of culture for you? And what was that experience like? You know what? This is going to be like the worst thing to say, but it's just like the truth. Like, I think one, speaking English made things a whole lot easier. Mm. Like when I went to Monaco, when I went to Russia, because I can't imagine if like, yeah, if I was one of like the Japanese students who didn't speak a word of English or didn't speak a word of French, Italian, or in Russia, Russian, how much more perhaps stress they would have had. Because actually it was quite common for students at any one of these ballet schools to kind of drop out and quit or leave halfway through the year. Probably the least so in Canada. It would happen every now and again in the schools in Monaco, but like not so much, but like in Moscow, it would happen quite a lot with foreign students or international students. And every now and again with a Russian student as well, just because kind of the demand of the level of what they kind of wanted and what they wanted to see and the level that your classmates would be at was like, it was so much more demanding and it was so high that people would have a lot of kind of mental health kind of ailments that would present themselves from the stress essentially like I remember one girl her hair was was like falling out like falling out because of the stress and she had to just like go home or like you know people would have like eating disorders and all that stuff wow yeah like thinking back it's like it presents itself in different ways with different people but it's it's interesting though because then you see there's some people who are just really really robust I don't know what a psychologist would call it like just like such an intense work ethic that there's someone that can just plow through 
a, a high demand of pressure and like stress like having to do their schoolwork, but also having to like stick to a strict diet, but also having to do all the training and competing with like your classmates and all of that stuff. So yeah, like in Russia, I would say it was probably the most intense. It's kind of like survival of the fittest, like either you're made for it or you're not kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people who kind of can't withstand it and stay or or thrive under that pressure and in that environment, it's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you couldn't handle it. You wouldn't be able to do it. And like, that's okay. You know, I think you kind of have to find like who you have to find the space that's right for you, like in life. Cause I think some people it's like, they love ballet or they love dance, but they were trying to force themselves to do it to a level that they weren't really mm -hmm. made for like mentally or emotionally or physically or whatever. Or some people it's like, they just thrive in it, like in the hard work and in the sweat and in the pressure and the yelling and because like they, they just love it. And for some reason, they can just, they thrive in it and they thrive under like the pressure and the hard work, you know, and under the stress. Um, yeah. Crumble. They absolutely crumble under the pressure and the stress. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a part of dance training. Actually, I think that's probably a whole nother conversation. You know, is that the right way? Should we feel that extreme stress training? Because, uh, you know, you said you were 12 at, at one of those stages, but I think we'll leave that for maybe our next interview because there's a lot to unpack in that alone precious now you're in London and you've been here for some time you've been here for a few years so where do you consider home for you now that you're here home is where the heart is I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I consider like wherever I'm at to be like my home like I consider London my home now, but it's funny because like when we go on tour and stuff, um, I'm like, okay, like after dinner, we're going to go home. And people are like, you mean back to the hotel? But in my mind, I'm like, the home is wherever the bed is, like wherever the clean, comfortable bed is, like that's where home is, <laughs> like, wherever the happy space is. Um, but yeah, I consider London to be my home. So then I have to ask, do you have a favorite food from home? Or maybe, maybe you have a favorite food now from London or a favorite food that reminds you of where you grew up? I'm like such a foodie. Like I find so much comfort in food. It's like, Don't we all? which is also why like, the lockdown was like so dangerous for me. Like I put on quite a bit of weight, which is, it's falling off now. Luckily, like I'm still young. So my metabolism can just be like, okay. Like I find food, like it's like my vice. It's like my comfort. I go to it when I'm like happy, stressed, whatever. So like, thank God I'm so active. Uh, otherwise I would definitely like, I would not be slender. But I would say my favorite food would either be, like, my mom's homemade apple pie. But I also love, like, homemade lasagna, like, at home. Like, my mom just makes such a great lasagna. Like, it's just better than any lasagna I've ever had, like, anywhere else, at any restaurant, anywhere. It's just different. Ooh, you're making me hungry. <laughs> but also, I don't know if you've ever heard of cassava pie. Like, that's a traditional food from from the islands my mom's side is Bermudian and my dad's side's Anguillian so like that's probably the only traditional like piece of heritage that like I have I think like that's like a, a real authentic piece of like my like lineage or like my heritage or whatever that I have and that's like cassava pie and I don't know if you've ever had it before no we haven't no. but this is good because we're gonna have to add this to our cookbook you gotta Google it. It's so good. Yeah. It's like a sweet and savory cake. It's like a really kind of dense, kind of sweet, moist 
cake made from cassava, but then you put like chicken in the cake, like, but it's so good. What? I, <laughs> wait, <laughs> it sounds really weird, but I made it for Christmas for my friends this year. And I was like, guys, I'm going to make cassava pie. It's like cake with chicken in it. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm going to cook it. You guys are going to taste it. And, and like, they loved it. And then my, my friend's family came over from like Colorado and they like, they were like, this is so good. Obviously, it's like it's a bit fattening or whatever, but you know, a little piece is good for you in the holidays. So, do you have an experience, or do you have a special memory with that cassava pie? Then, all your mom's lasagna, all the apple pie. There are a few options there. I remember like, making lasagna with my with my mom one time when I was at home, and I made like two big trays of it too. And I just remember like my dad had like two or three portions, and like my brother, like he's a real fatty, like. And, like, they just, like, loved it. I think that was also one of the first times when I had, like, the feeling of, like, just, like, the intense satisfaction and, like, gratification of, like, when you make something from scratch and then when people like it, there's just something so wholesome about that experience and that feeling. It was, like, my nurturing mother side was, like, awakened. Like, I was, like, oh, my God, it's beautiful when people like your cooking. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. I've discovered that during lockdown. <laughs> did you make a banana bread <laughs> no no um actually it was talia uh, my sister who was supposed to be making banana bread she was adamant she was going to and i have five frozen bananas in the freezer waiting for her because she was adamant to not use them she's definitely making it the frozen bananas are still there so i'll keep you posted on that one <laughs> well you know what Precious, you've kind of jumped the gun for us here because I feel like you kind of were looking in on our, our planning. We have a secret question that we ask all of our guests. What do they prefer, yams or yuca? And I feel like I already have your answer because cassava is the other name for yuca. Oh, okay. Um, and so I feel like that's probably your answer, girl. Do you have a preference between the two? No, I couldn't say because the only way I've ever eaten, you said yuca is the other name for cassava? Yeah. Yeah, the only way I've ever had yuca is in the cassava pie or the yuca pie. Right. But what about yams? I would probably have to say yams just because I've eaten yams in a wider variety of ways. So then I feel mm. like it's more versatile. But then I also don't know any other ways to prepare uh, yuca. So, but yeah, I'm going to have to say yams actually. So, yeah. Oh, tricky, tricky, tricky. Yeah. We're going to shift back into talking about being an artist. Just so you know, we might need to look into this recipe about the the cake. Although when you said chicken, <laughs> wasn't quite so sure about that. I cannot tell you how good it is. Because also you have to make the chicken broth. You mix it into the, the batter. It's gluten-free too because you don't use any flour. It's just the because the yuca or the cassava is the it's kind of the main binding dough agent or whatever. Yeah, I'm not convinced. Girl, it's so good. <laughs> it's like it's kind of like corn cake, but less crumbly in texture and a little more sticky, but like not sticky. It's just less crumbly than cornbread. Do you know cornbread? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'll make a mean But like bread. in the cornbread, but a less crumbly cornbread and a more moisture sticky cornbread. It's like it tastes like that. It's good. You're trying to sell it to us. I'm not convinced, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the live version. Uh, Heather, over to you. <laughs> I have to do a little personal research on that. But let's just jump back into talking about your artistry and 
can you tell us what initially made you want to become a ballet dancer and a dance artist? You know, it's funny because this all started, my mom, she like did her residency in New York and she like would always, like you can like, you can spot the ballet dancer on the street in New York City in like the 90s like that. And I think my mom was always like really like attracted to that. I really liked like just she had like this idea and this fantasy. She was like, one day I want to have like a really graceful daughter. Like, so I don't want to say like maybe my mother freaking manifested this. I don't know. But she I remember her talking about like how she used to be like, one day I'm going to have like really graceful daughters. Like that's like what she wanted or whatever. She's been blessed with like two girls. And so I guess I was always dancing around in the living room, but I was not like a graceful child. I was actually like, from the time I was a a baby through to being like eight years old, I was kind of like frowny. And I like, I hated when like people would come close to the stroller and be like, oh, like, oh, look at the little girl. I would like hate it. Or when people were in my face when I was like a baby and a toddler and stuff, I was very like kind of grouchy. Like that's kind of the word my mom would use. But I would dance around in the living room a lot, but it was, you know, it was like frumpy, like it wasn't like twirly, you know, like a little twirly toddler with a pink tutu. It was more like this like frumpy, grumpy little, but my mom signed me up for creative movement classes. And then from there, I would just take dance classes and I just really started to love it. And then I kind of like took over and started to be the one calling like the shots and stuff and being like, I think I need to do this. I think I need to go here. I want to do this competition and that thing and this thing. But I actually started out doing like jazz and tap. Nice. That's really beautiful. It sounds like your mom has had a really, really big impact on you. And I mean, you already mentioned that at the beginning when we asked about significant memory of growing up, but hearing your mom sort of like manifesting you and your sister into these graceful dancers. That's really, really beautiful. Who or what would you say is your biggest inspiration? I don't actually think I get inspiration from like individual people's characters or like things that other people have accomplished as much as I get inspiration from like things that I find really beautiful or really interesting or like really significant. And I think like that's kind of what drives me more like it's kind of the idea of like wanting to be impactful or like or significant in some kind of way. And I think also like thinking about like my parents like worked really hard. And so like, I also don't want to like disappoint them. I'm also very much a people pleaser. So I think like that's the thing that kind of drives me more than it would be like, oh, Mr. Copeland's like my biggest inspiration. It's more like, I don't want to be a failure. Like fear of failure is kind of like a bigger inspiration, but that's also my biggest hindrance as well is like the fear of failure. So it's such a weird Like, what inspires you to get out of bed in the morning instead of, like, giving up on everything? It's like, that's such a loaded question, you know, especially in 2020. (laughs) But yeah, it's fear of failure, I guess. Well, you're doing pretty well so far, I have to say. You're doing great, sweetie, as they say. So I don't think you have that to worry about at all. But thinking about you working in the dance industry and specifically as a black artist has there been some challenges that you faced along the way can you share some of those with us the thing is like I haven't experienced so much like covert racism or anything I think mainly because I'm such a hard worker and like I think like my work kind of speaks for itself that I think anyone would just feel like a complete (laughs) a-hole but I have to say like the worst thing And it's not even like I experienced it because it was technically it was cyberbullying or whatever the term is. But like the worst thing 
that I've experienced that was like an attack on like my race. It was so Pretty Lausanne, the ballet competition that I did. They upload everyone's videos. They're kind of one of the also one of the first kind of like ballet entities to really be like producing digital content because they'd been the competition started in the early 80s. So I think they'd been like video recording stuff since like since as early as people could get like a, a video camera or whatever. So you can find like really old videos that people have managed to like digitize or whatever. But before that, I mean, it's pretty hard to find. There weren't like really ballet competitions and stuff. And there definitely wasn't like really hard copies of like people's performances and shows at these competitions. So they upload all the videos. And so like there's, you know, there's like years and years and years of videos of people's competitions, like all of like the famous ballet dancers, loads of like the ballet dancers who've had like really big careers and stuff. You can go back and watch them at the ballet competition when they were 16 or 15 or 18 or whatever, kind of having their little breakthrough moment. So yeah, when my video was uploaded to YouTube, so this would have been in 2014, there was a comment on the video and it was a really lengthy comment. Like this person put some freaking effort in, like, I want to say three paragraphs, like three decent long paragraphs. Like they really put some effort into it, but it was nasty. Like it was dark, but I didn't know what a screenshot was. I showed it to my mom and I remember like, I think I might've cried a tiny bit, but like, it's weird because those sort of things kind of affect you. It's almost on a deeper level than like, than crying. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just said some really nasty things. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say any of it because I don't believe in like perpetuating really ugly things in the world and like putting it back out there. But yeah, it was a very overtly like racist comment totally like bashing me and like why like listing reasons why I shouldn't be in a tutu because I'm black essentially and like that kind of like triggered me because I was like or it affected me because I was like I thought that what I was doing was like objectively good Mm -hmm. I was like it's not a bad thing like do you know what I mean and I think like I never kind of saw it as anything that could be torn down or like torn apart in any way or like I was like, what could you attach to this that's negative except for like perhaps commenting on my technique, which when I look at the video now, I think it's trash because I'm like, this is technically not up to scratch. Like it's not good enough. But like the the comments didn't talk about my technique. It talked about like shit that was totally irrelevant, but it affected me because I was like, wow, so not everyone who sees me in a tutu or dancing will be okay with it. So that was really hard for me to kind of like accept because it's like okay I'm going to be putting myself out there for the next 20 years as a professional being paid to put myself out there and people might potentially fucking hate it which is kind of it's a hard pill to swallow especially like for the first time but I mean at this point it's just kind of laughable it's still hard to believe especially that was 2014 and you know we have examples now in 2020 that someone can just look at you and just because of how you look have already decided that they don't like what you're doing just based on skin color. I just find the whole concept so baffling, so unbelievable because even though you say you were technically not good, I have every faith that the performance was amazing. But, you know, we we continue with these challenges and I'm glad that you continue to have the success that you do. And thinking about other things that you have dealt with in the industry, you know, now we have more skin tones available for dance tights and shoes. 
And what does that mean for you, especially as you have been someone who's been openly vocal about not wearing the standard ballet pink tights? I just think like, that's the other thing is like, there's black girls who don't actually think that we need to wear skin tone tights. And that's like, Mm -hmm. that's the other thing that makes you then even doubt your own perception of reality. You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, not even all black people view things the same way, which is fine. For me, it's more about having like, the option and like the open mindedness and the open conversation about looking at both options, like depending on which ballet I'm doing or whatever, and just everyone being comfortable with it. So like, I have to say like, that's the one thing that I'm really, really happy about is like at English National Ballet now, like for any ballet that we do, whether it's a new creation, which could be anything from like the Pina Bausch piece, which if you were to Google it and look at pictures, it's like very modern it's considered dance theater and it's like the stage is covered in dirt and it's like a ritualistic uh art piece more than it is a ballet in tutu and we do everything from that all the way to like swan lake and everything in between and that's the one beautiful thing about ballet also that i think a lot of people aren't aware of is how diverse ballet can be which is why i think ballet is for everyone there's something for everyone but anyways The fact that everyone is just so much more comfortable now. So like if I go into a costume fitting and whether it's for Swan Lake, that's been done for over 250 years, even though it's remade and reinterpreted by different choreographers and stuff still, or if it's something that's like a new creation, modern, contemporary, neoclassical, whatever, the conversation is had and we look at what looks best for like my body, the aesthetic of the piece for what's appropriate for the ballet and just the fact that everyone's comfortable to say "Mm, okay like let's see how this looks with the brown tights let's see how this looks with pink tights okay yeah let's go with the brown tights for this one or okay let's do pink tights in the first act and um, we'll do bare skin in the second act or whatever it is like the fact that everyone's like comfortable to just look at both options I think is like progress like that's all I think anyone wanted was to just be like to just be accepted Mm -hmm. in the picture and like instead of just being like your disruption being here do you know what I mean yeah that you're being difficult no no that's not how I mean it I mean it like like the one token black girl being there trying to be there in the pink tights in the ballet production kind of just it's like oh my god that's just a disruption like oh they're trying to be diverse but instead it's like oh my gosh like ballet is diverse right Like everyone can just like accept like a globalized, diverse world where it's like we look at everyone as like individuals. We look at what looks best for those people, what looks best for the whole picture instead of just like shoving this one black girl in the back corner and like not considering anything and like not changing anything actually Mm -hmm. fundamentally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now it's like everyone's opened up the costume people, the choreographers, everyone's comfortable and like. I think more open to looking at the big picture, considering like what's going on in the world, thinking about progress. Okay. We have people of like 50 different skin tones in this ballet company. What would look best for this production? Mm -hmm. That's really, really powerful. And I can imagine that it changes the way you're able to even approach the work when you have that freedom or at least the knowledge to know that people are open to the conversation and open to change. Yeah. And like just the comfort. I think everyone feels more comfortable now in this space. And that's down to like, there's always been, or not always, there's been more like Asian dancers in the ballet world, but they kind of had to have like their breakthrough into it at one point. I also have an Indian colleague at English National Ballet 
And I think everyone just feels more comfortable, like considering themselves and speaking up or having a conversation like, I think this might look best on me for this thing. Or what do you think? You know, whereas before yeah. it was like no one would even consider saying a thing and disrupting. And I hate to use the word disrupting because I don't feel like it's disruption if it's just a conversation about like, oh, did we ever think about this in another way or are we just gonna all blindly carry on doing things how we've always done them yeah that's another thing that I think people really I don't want to say like an English culture but it is kind of an English culture that's very much about tradition and but this is how we've always done it and it's like okay but it's 2020 you know maybe there's a new way maybe there's a better way you know what I mean because there's always a better way and there's always a new way you know mm-hmm. every other industry is always moving forward and innovating and it's like you can't try to like move things backwards or like keep things how they are and remain stagnant like that's ridiculous yeah always reconsider look at the big picture think about what could be done better yeah and I think that's like a big hindrance in like the classical arts and stuff but another important part of the classical arts is preserving is preserving old works as they were Uh, which I completely understand and I completely respect that. And so that's why I'm a huge advocate for taking up space in things that are being created for the future and making like one of my like career goals is to have something as significant as Swan Lake made, but that's just somehow uh, of this century and of this time. Mm -hmm. And that includes me with like my dark skin, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's so significant that it lasts for 250 years and it's mm-hmm. still done and it sells out theaters like that would be like my dream to somehow play some part in in making something that significant um but for the 21st century you know put it out there if that's what you want precious speak it into existence man exactly so uh we will look forward to that piece yeah and speaking of you know the future um, moving things forward, doing things differently. We've seen you've worked with high-profile brands outside of your role as a ballet dancer with ENB. You've mentioned your campaigns when we talked about your bio, which is really powerful to see you in a different space. Apart from this reimagined Swan Lake, what vision do you have for yourself in the future? Sorry, I'm just I have to be really specific when manifesting things, but yes, not a reimagined Swan Lake. 100% no. like 1000% no that's another thing is like I think Swan Lake is incredible when it's done closely to how it was originally done and the things that are kind of like some of the things that are like remakes of it it's I don't know it's like Swan Lake music Tchaikovsky like I I imagine it done the traditional way so like it wouldn't be a remake it would be something totally it's gonna be something totally new but it will be as significant as Swan Lake in terms of Swan Lake is like the ballet that like you could ask any person on the street like oh Swan Lake and they'd be like oh I think it's a ballet right you know what I mean mm-hmm. got it now I understand yeah. yeah so you want to create something as impactful but that's yeah. you yeah. got it yeah or just something that's like of the 21st century but like that represents the classical art form of the 21st century but is as significant as Swan Lake and lasts for you know hundreds of years and people want to do it as it was originally done 200 years from now or whatever for example yes come on specificity in the manifestation yeah sorry you gotta be specific otherwise sometimes the universe presents you with some stuff and it's like that is what I asked for but that's not what I was thinking (laughs) (laughs) so the question is apart from having 
an impactful ballet that lasts 200 years plus that people want to continuously do, what other vision do you have for yourself in the future? That's a hard one because people ask me that a lot. And sometimes I feel like I haven't visualized something specific enough for like my future. So yeah, I definitely want to be a part of creating something as significant as and as important and as impactful as Swan Lake, but for the 21st century. But I mean, I want all the normal things in life. Like I want to be a mom. I want to, I want to have a family. Beyond that, like I don't exactly know exactly how I'm going to, what else I want. I also want to just have like a really long a really long happy career like I just want to be really happy with like the works that I do and going about that might be kind of difficult because I realized that in the most subtlest of ways I do tend to be a little bit typecast which is fine because everyone is kind of put into the roles that they're best suited for which makes sense and sometimes the vision you have for yourself isn't always in line with what's like realistic or like what's marketable or do you know what I mean? So sometimes it's a little hard to be a hundred percent realistic, mm-hmm. but I think I'm still trying to envision exactly what I want for myself in the future. That's realistic, but that's still exactly what I want. That's beautiful. I think everything is realistic. You are marketable in whatever you envision yourself as. I'm just going to throw that in there. So whatever you want to happen is possible. You are marketable. We were just watching your videos, and if somebody doesn't want to buy that, then I don't know what that person wants, to be honest. That's just me, Heather. I don't know how you think. We could go so deep into this stuff. Gosh, it's like we could go into, what is it called? Colorism. Um, Because I sometimes I'm like, gosh, like, it's harder to market someone darker to the masses. And we have, we know that and we've seen that like through and through and like, we're trying to change it. Like we're trying to actively be a part of changing that. But like, when you look at even like singers careers, you look at like just through entertainment, through like media, whether that's like through entertainment and music or whether that's through beauty, through fashion, through any of those things, it's always been kind of like the lighter skin, dark person. And they're like, oh, but look at we're diverse, but we're going to go with that person who is just a little bit lighter because they're more marketable. And like, that's just how it's been. And that's not to take away from like all the work that's been done and all the groundwork that's been laid for me, because I'm so grateful for all that groundwork and I need that groundwork to be there. But like, I'm ready to push through and for like white people to feel like they can relate to me. Yeah. But do you think that that's something that we've just all been told? that it's not marketable. I feel like it, that's just something we've all been kind of indoctrinated to believe. I don't think so. I'm acknowledging how it is. Like I'm acknowledging the reality of the situation, but I don't think that that's how it should be, or I don't think that that's the truth, but it's, it takes a long time to change people's deep thoughts, beliefs, feelings, around race, around sex, around those fundamental things that people think and believe, it takes a long time to change that. By saying like the colorism thing about being marketable and kind of the lighter, the more marketable, I'm kind of just acknowledging how it is and how it's been. I don't believe that to be true Mm -hmm. because, or no, no, no. I believe that is true because that's how it is. I don't think that's how it should be because here you have, you know, 
it seems like the darker you are, kind of like the less exposure, the less opportunity, the less big you seem to be able to get and be. And it's funny because it's kind of goes even beyond, we could say like colorism, but it's kind of like what they define as like what's marketable is like what they define as beautiful. And so changing what people believe to be beautiful, I think it takes a long time to start believing that like a person is beautiful for like who they are. Like, because there's people who are what we can say, quote unquote, aesthetically beautiful, who are like total bitches and assholes in person. And Mm -hmm it's an ugly person it doesn't matter how flawless your skin is you know like when you hear about like not to bash her or anything but if you hear like oh Naomi Campbell has like a nasty outburst or a real diva moment it's like ooh, that's kind of ugly like that's not so pretty so yeah like I think changing the world to value people for like who they are their character the work that they do like how good a person they are and all those things and truly being judged on those things and valuing those things I think it's important like as a society for people to just value those things above like genetic lottery or whatever, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I understand what you're saying. You're recognizing how society is at the moment. It's not Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. but it's going to take a while for those changes to happen. And like Kamar said, you're fully capable of being whatever you want to be. You're fully capable of being part of that change and that new standard of, not beauty, but that new standard of what people want to aspire to. And people already aspire to be like you. And you may not see how you impact people maybe at the granular level. You know, no one ever knows their full reach and their full potential. But I encourage you to just continue doing the work that you're doing and not to doubt the vision and the drive that you have because it's there. The the work is proving itself in the things that you've done. Throughout our conversation, you know, we've talked about the pressure, people being able to push through that, and you have certainly, and you've you've mentioned some of the challenges or some of the negativity that you've faced and risen above. Can you talk about how you're gracious with yourself or patient with yourself as you navigate your career? I mean, I'm sure you've picked up on like some of my complexes or whatever, because my mind weighs itself down with a lot of like self-doubt and like you can do better like you could work harder like you could do so much more because I feel that pretty often if not like all the time just like this looming feeling of like you should be doing more do more do more but then like there's this other part of me that's like but do more what like I don't even know what more to do or how to achieve it like when you asked me the question about um, what more do you want for your future and it's like part of me's like I have no clue so I think I'm I've had to kind of like throughout my journey, I've had to kind of learn how to be, yeah, how to be a little bit more gentle with my inner voice, like with my inner dialogue, with how I speak to myself and stuff, because I've always been kind of hard on myself and kind of my hardest critic. But I also think you need a little bit of that because that's the only way you're going to kind of achieve anything or like get anywhere or get that like, get that grit to like motivate yourself and to do some things you do have to be a little hard on yourself but I notice that it can start to kind of hinder me a little bit um if I'm just kind of like just way too harsh and can kind of come through yeah like that kind of ugly competitiveness sometimes but kind of fighting internally so I've had to kind of like let some of that harshness go and yeah I think the voice that I use to talk to myself is I've had to just kind of change it to be a little bit more gentle 
And whether that's just like the way that I speak to myself when I'm doing my hair or like doing my makeup, I'm warming up for a class while I'm doing class, if things aren't going perfectly in class, if I'm having a bad class um, and kind of like letting it roll, you need to like let stuff roll off your back pressure. You don't need to like hold on to it if you're having a bad day or whatever. I've just noticed that it's life is better and it goes a little easier the quicker you can kind of just like oh I'm having a bad day just like just keep the energy like up don't let it drag you down like that one little bad moment Um, and the quicker you can kind of just like flip that bad moment and convert it into like the next moment that will hopefully be a little better and a little bit more positive or whatever just life just goes a little bit nicer that way instead of like if you have one bad moment and then letting that drag you down and then like your thoughts become super negative. So yeah, I just try to be really resilient and quick about flipping any like little like trip up or any little negative moment. I just try to flip into a positive one as quickly as I can. And I imagine that's something you've learned to do over time because you know, that takes time to, to learn how to do with yourself, especially as a dancer. I was saying I can imagine as if I can't imagine being a dancer, <laughs> but I can imagine. <laughs> so what advice would you give to anyone wanting to pursue a career as a ballet dancer, Precious? You do need to be very self-determined and very hardworking. Like I was putting in 20 hours a week from the time I was 11. And like, that's just like how long it takes, like between 15 to 20 hours a week for years. So I think my advice is to be prepared to work hard. If that's what you want to do as a career and to make a living at it, I think you have to be someone who's who loves it and who's willing to put in their 10,000 hours and to put in the work or whatever. And so and I think that applies to like whatever you love. So I think it's more about find what you love, what your heart actually really loves because then it's a lot easier to commit the time and to invest the time into it in the work it's really hard to work hard at something you hate you know you're gonna try to half-ass it (laughs) you know what I mean yeah definitely like hearing you say that is amazing because you know we have students tomorrow and I we work with young dancers and we try to get them to understand that they have to do the work outside the studio because they're only with us for a few of those 20 hours a few of those 15 hours a week that they need to do the work so but also we know that if our dancers don't love it then they're not going to be willing to put in that work so absolutely thank you for sharing that and I think like whether like you start taking dance lessons and you find out that like gosh like I don't think I have the love or the passion or the commitment for this as like a career and you decide that it'll just be a hobby like it's so it's just so beneficial to take all that like medicine that you can get from dance like self-discipline self-awareness like an ability to be like aware of your body and to like sense your body in spaces like that translates and that can be used in like so many other things in life anyways and so it's like take that with you and like find what you love enough to like give 120% to it because like anyone who's ever like really successful like they were putting in 100% 120% of like their effort energy time like you know I just happened to find this and I like I was obsessed with it like I can tell you like I was obsessed from like the time I was like 10 or 11 years old I was obsessed like it was all I would spend my time on but that's how you get great at something so 
just find what you love and that it's really easy to work hard at what you love. That's pretty good advice. Well, it's about that time to wrap up and we just want to know, uh, make sure you can tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and where to connect with you. So can you share that with us, please? You can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Preciousagram, P-R-E-C-I-O-U-S-A-G-R-A-M, Preciousagram. And you can also follow English National Ballet because all my main performances and everything will be done with English National Ballet. So you can either follow them on Instagram at English National Ballet or just check out their website and see when their upcoming shows are. We're doing a digital season until December. So you'll be able to like log in and see live things that we're putting on from the production studio. But I'll probably post about it on Instagram. So yeah. Yeah, well, we look forward to continuing to follow your journey. And of course, we will be first in line to see you when you're back on stage. And in the meantime, we will absolutely check out the digital uh, program because that sounds very exciting. Yeah, we're really excited. I know we hate that. Obviously, we can't be in the spaces. Kamara and I were just talking about that. Like, how long is it going to be? We'll see you back on stage and definitely check you out online. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey with us. You've shared so many gems. I've definitely written down a lot of things. So we really, really appreciate it. You joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to hear the final edit. (laughs) Yeah. And there's so much more that we can talk about. So we'll have to definitely welcome you back. So we're going to take a little break, digest everything that Precious shared with us. And then when we come back, it's time for dessert. We'll be right back. are back and it's time for our sweet and savory desserts Mm -mm. we're going to recap those moments in the conversation that give us a sweet sugar rush or other more rich stick to your stomach fulfilling desserts so for me my sweet moment with precious was when she was talking about how her mom manifested graceful dancers into her life Mm -hmm. into her daughters i thought that was just really really sweet that her mom really wanted to have graceful children and really, you know, was an example actually for Precious and her sister. And they basically became that. They both became dancers. I thought that was really, really sweet. What about you? Yes, that was Um, nice. Um, My sweet moment was just a bit of fun, really, and something that brought back memories is when she spoke about, I think she was in Russia, talking about buying phone cards. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that just reminded me of my times uh, when I was in New York specifically and you'd have to go and buy phone cards and you'd check the rates and everything and then you'd have to find a phone, a phone box. Yeah. Or use somebody's house phone. And I remember always, you know, your relatives would always think you're racking up their phone bill because you're like, no, I've Mm -hmm. got a phone card. It's going to come from the phone card. So yeah, so that was a nice sweet moment. It just brought back brought back memories yeah. of that time. It's such a novel idea, you know? Like, yeah. kids these days will have no idea what we're talking about. No. You know what I mean? Uh, like, they will have no idea what we're talking about. And I used to actually collect my phone cards. Like, anytime I would come back from a trip, and I could literally be somewhere. Like, as, I had phone cards, yeah, in New York when I went to go spend the summer there when I was, like, 11 years old. 
And that was a thing. You go to the little corner shop, you buy your phone mm-hmm. card. Because even in the States, long distance phone calling wasn't included like on regular landlines. Like you had to get a calling card. And now it's just, you don't even blink. You pick up your phone, you call somebody in a whole other country and it's not even like a thought. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah, that was really, really sweet. Um, what about your savory moment? Um, my savory moment was just when she was talking about at the end, find what you love because it's a lot easier to do and to give it 120%. So really just spend mm. your time. If you can, obviously we're quite lucky that we have found what we love to do. I know it's not the case for everybody, but yeah. if you can, especially especially when we're talking about dance and especially when we're talking about uh, black families as well. You know, I've met so many parents that, you know, they, they want to follow the narrative of get a good job in inverted commas, mm-hmm. which dance normally doesn't fall into that category. And I just think it's so important for young people specifically to really, if they have a passion for something, to be given the chance and to be given the support to follow that passion because it's hard out there anyway, regardless of what job you do. So it's going to be a lot better if you're at least doing something that you enjoy because, you know, even if you just look at the current time with what's happened with COVID-19 and everything, no, nobody's job mm-hmm. is secure. So it's just going to be a lot better if you're at least doing something that you enjoy and that you're really passionate about. Yeah. True, because that, like, when you have the passion behind what you do, that's what's going to motivate you to get through times like these mm-hmm. where things are so unsure. Like, if you don't even like what you're doing, how would you be motivated during a pandemic or during a crisis or even not even something that extreme, like to just simply move yourself forward in the career. If you don't have much passion behind it, how are you going to sustain yourself? You know, you hear about those like CEOs who are like, yeah, I've been on Wall Street for 15 years. I didn't like it. So I just randomly quit my job and started, you know, making floral bouquets or something like that. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, so I, I love that as the savory moment. I think it's something really important to instill in people. If you are fortunate enough to find your passion, then you know, do whatever you can to to pursue it. So that was my savory moment. What was yours? My savory moment was, you know, I didn't even really think about this and it didn't I didn't realize it hit me as hard, but when she was talking about using different skin tones for the tights and the ballet shoes in different ballets and traditional things. She said something that she kind of just passed by, but it really hit when she said not all black people view things the same way. And she was talking about how, when they discuss a ballet and, you know, at least they have the chance to have the conversation, you know, she might not necessarily think it's right to have a brown skin tone. She might say, okay, no, a white tight, you know, a white color tight or, Uh, a more pale skin tone or pink tie is more appropriate. And I think that's true. I think sometimes we do get stuck, even when we shout, I know for me, I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say for me, I have moments where I'm always shouting, like, black people are not the same. We're not a monolith. And then on the other hand, I'll be like, but all black people should feel this way. You know what I mean? So I do have those moments where I forget that, Yes, we are very, very different in our thinking Mm -hmm. and how we experience things, though we do have a lot of common ground and a lot of common experiences. Our point of views might not always 
pan out or shape out to be the same, even if we have the same experiences. Mm-hmm. That's definitely going to stick with me. Yeah, definitely. We do all have uh, differences of opinions. And I think that, like you said, is something important to remember because sometimes we're made to feel that we all have to band together and deliver the same message. And anyone who isn't supporting that message, like, I'm just thinking of something big, like, you know, all black people should support Obama or something like that. <gasps> all black people don't support Obama? <laughs> <laughs> I hate to break it to you, Heather. Oh, no, girl, I know. (laughs) And it shocks me every single time. (laughs) And it hurts my heart sometimes. I'll be like, but, but, but. (laughs) But the reality is, and, you know, people have their different reasonings. And like you said, for the fights, I guess it depends on context, really, for me. Because if somebody is saying, a Black person is saying they want to wear pink tights because they think that's their skin color or something like that. I don't know what the situation could be. I kind of mm-hmm. an example. Then that would be something I'd probably, you know, something say different. something about. But yeah. if they're saying this is the costume, the costume is pink or it look, it's going to look better in this situation, then I guess it depends on context. I would need a good example for that, but I can understand how there could be different conversations. Yeah. And that's the other thing that kind of, I guess I have another savory moment is where she was saying it's such a relief that, you know, her company EMB, they're open to having the conversation. Cause sometimes there's also that like people are not even open to having the conversation. Yeah. So that's really, really important as well. Yeah, that is good. Well, that's it for today. We'd like to thank you for listening and please let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag Yams and Yuka. Don't forget to tag us at Yams and Yuka on Twitter and at Yams and Yuka Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Also, you can email us at Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to know your thoughts on today's conversation. Let's keep the discussion going. Feel free to share your stories as well to add to our DMs and make a tapestry. We'll chat with you guys again next time. Bye. Bye.